Every time I tried to write about my family, which was obviously a preoccupation with me, my family of origin, I was swamped by the material. I didn't know how to go at it. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, and we build technology that helps people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Cobone Conversation. My guest today is Vicki Laveau Harvey, translator, editor, educator, award-winning poet and short story writer, and the author of memoir, The Erratics. It's about her mother and the control she exerts over her family and anyone in earshot with her inexhaustible stream of lies ranging from banal fibbing all the way up to faking her own death to get out of a disagreeable work situation. The book manages to be shocking, moving, surprisingly funny, which is no doubt why it won Australia's Stella Prize in 2019. Vicki Laveau Harvey, welcome to Kobo. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. This season of Kobo and Conversation has been rich in memoir, and I think all different kinds of memoir, all different kinds of lives. And it raises a tricky interviewing challenge, which is that to talk about the book is also to talk about your life and often difficult, challenging, or painful episodes from your life. So it always feels more than a little invasive from my side of the microphone. How is that for you on the receiving end of all of these questions? Well, I very much appreciate your sensitivity, Michael. But I decided one thing when I realized this book was going to be published, which was the very first shock for me. That was a huge shock. I did not expect it to be. I realized one thing, that if I chose to publish, that whatever I put in the book, I was giving to the reader. And that anyone who wished to speak to me about what was in the book was fine with me because that was my decision. And those things that I shared are things I was willing to share. I think I've written a rather spare book. I haven't gone into great detail or given multiple examples of some things. I wanted to give enough so the reader understood, but Nothing that is in the book is out of bounds. So I have had on occasion a person asking me what I considered an invasive question or making a comment which went very personal about who I might be as a person and how I live my life as a result of this. And those things I just deflected because that's not what I was doing. So fire away, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. In The Erratics, you are a reliable narrator for an unreliable subject, as you describe events and episodes in your orbit around your mother who had narcissistic personality disorder. How would you describe her to someone who hasn't yet picked up this book? Well, I think for both me and my sister, My mother was someone who was rather akin to a force of nature. She wasn't someone you could really 
understand or come to compromises with. She was rather detached from reality, which I believe is almost always a characteristic of narcissistic personality disorder or those disorders in general. There is a lack of connection with reality and with real possibilities and real situations. I believe that a lot of what my mother told people were things that she saw as a kind of truth in herself. I don't believe she set out to tell lies, but she would create a lot of havoc with what she did put out there. And she had the charisma, often characteristic of people afflicted with this kind of terrible disorder. It's a terrible thing for them to live with and a destructive thing for the person who's who's caring about them or who lives with them. But I believe that that charisma meant that her fabulations often carried a lot of weight with people. So my sister and I, especially in the six-year period I talk about in the book, found ourselves often trying to undo, undo perceptions of us created in people by what my mother had told them. The events of the book have you variously escaping her influence, getting pulled back in, as you said, sort of in that orbit. Can you give us just a preview of the time in your life that the book covers, where that starts and where that ends? Yes. The Erratics covers a six-year period approximately, which was the period where my sister and I reappeared in our parents' lives I had not seen my parents, I think only on one occasion over the preceding two decades. My sister lives closer to them and actually saw them perhaps several times over that period. But my mother had erased us from their lives to the best of her ability. And this meant that when we reappeared, it was an event (laughs) for everyone. And that six-year period coincided with an event, which was my mother breaking her hip and being hospitalized, leaving my father alone on the country property where they lived. And an outsider, realizing what dire straits my father was in, he looked very ill and he was having trouble coping on his own and finding my sister on the web and contacting her. Those six years were spent endeavoring to find a safe place for my mother to live, making sure that she did not come back to the home because she had been starving my father and we were afraid for him and afraid for her. So those six years were spent dealing with those things and often very hilarious situations would eventuate. And that surprised me because a lot of this was just plain tragic or difficult. So it's the story of those six years. The book ends, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying what it ends with. It ends with my mother's death. And I wanted it to be an exploration of what that period resurrected in my own psyche, perhaps in my sister's, although I cannot speak for her. But it gave me the possibility of bringing in a lot of backstory and trying to carpet these events from that six-year period with what went before. 
When you talk about your return into her life being an event, it really was an event in the sense that people would have been told that you had died or that you had disappeared or that you'd never existed. And it seems like every person that you encountered through the book as you were coming back into your mother's life had a different sense of who you were and whether you were real or not. Yes, and there were two of us. <laughs> I'll never forget a meeting with, with some people. And my sister was already in the room, and my sister and I look rather similar. And um, these people had just barely got used to the idea that my sister was there. And then, wait, there's more, and I walk in. The look on people's faces. I mean, it was funny in a terrible way, but you are asking yourself questions about what it means to have been erased from a history, <laughs> to either have never existed or to um, have been wiped out in some, some way, <laughs> various ways. Growing up, when did you first realize that, that she was different and that your life was different as a result? Oh, I think I knew as soon as I had contact with the outside world, especially as soon as I went to school, because she was a little bit like a tornado. She really took places apart, and nothing was ever good enough. So I realized at school very quickly not to endeavor to communicate to anyone what my home life was actually like, because they might get in touch with my parents and this would trigger the most amazing kerfuffles. And I learned that as a child, that was not what I wanted. I preferred to keep my peace and endeavor to negotiate the situation I was in by myself. I think I was very early the responsible adult in the room. We see this in the book, both through your eyes and through the experiences of your sister. And you lived through many of the same things, but looking back now seem to feel quite differently about them. Can you describe that difference in perspective and kind of emotional after effect a bit? Well, I can't obviously speak for my sister, but it is true we are very different people. And it's also true that we've lived on different continents for maybe 45 years now. So that means we haven't actually been part of the fabric of each other's daily life for a long, long time. I think part of what I wanted to write in the book was the different ways that we saw the situations and that we reacted to them. And she's an extremely practical person, very good at getting things done. I could prevaricate for my native country. I really could in the Olympics of prevarication. So we are very, very different. I like to look into the ramifications of things for a very long time before anything happens. And she acts. So we had a kind of dynamic there. And she also had much more idea of how to go about things because she is a medical person and she didn't know the system, but she had some idea of how to begin dealing with some of these things. I think that she said a wonderful thing to me when this book was in manuscript form and she had read it. She said, 
And this, as a memoir writer, was something that comforted me because when you write memoir, you are committed, I think, you signed a contract with yourself that you will tell the absolute truth. Now, anyone who lives through the same experiences as you do may have a different version, but that's not the point. It's not autobiography. It is memoir. And so it is your truth. And my sister read the manuscript and she said to me that she remembered the events that I write about the ones that she was present for. She remembers those, event, those events as being the way I said they were in the book. She said, what is different is the significance they had for me at the time and the meaning I continue to attribute to them. Those things are different, but the events themselves were there. And I think basically that is what makes memoir interesting, is that fact that it is one person's truth to the very best of their ability. You mentioned a few times through the books that your own memories sometimes feel untrustworthy in the face of your mother's constant and shifting fabrication. And as readers, I think we feel that unsteadiness, that slight lack of confidence or questioning. Was that something that you had front of mind as you were writing this story, that you were having to cut through really a whole forest of other stories to get to your own? No, I didn't actually feel that way, Michael. I felt that what I was doing, I felt as though I I was on solid ground writing this book because I was talking about events that were very recent. This was the story of six years in my recent memory. I had boarding passes. I had various things. I had emails. I could check when certain things had happened. So from a point of view of actually anchoring my memories in something incontrovertible, if you like, in the recent present, that was not a problem. And what came up in relation to those events, these things came up of their own accord from my memory. I didn't have to go digging. These were things that were there. There are large blanks in my memory, and I put this down to trauma of one kind or another. I do have blanks from my childhood. I mean, from perhaps my early adolescence, there are periods when I do not remember things, but I do not know why. I've done a lot of work on myself to understand why that might be. I think some things were just painful and I blocked them out. But I didn't have to actually, you know, hack my way through a thicket to get to what I wanted. These things presented to me as a result of events in the very recent present. Speaking about that unsteadiness of connection to truth, let's talk about your father for a moment, because he, in a way, is the one that was you know, both most constantly exposed to your mother and sitting closest to that, that vortex, in a way. Can you talk a bit about his experience, as was shown through the course of the book? Well, we found my father in quite bad shape when we did turn up when my mother had broken her hip. He was very, very thin. He was confused. And um, he was not expecting to see us. He had apparently, a neighbor told me, had come to the gate and said to him a few days before we got there when he knew we were coming, 
She said he was in tears and he said, my girls are coming because my father had been told by my mother that she called us, she asked us to come and see him and that we said we didn't care and we would not come. Now that was not true. We tried quite hard to make contact by telephone in particular, but my father was deaf and living with my mother, the easiest way sometimes to navigate was to turn off your hearing aid and not hear anything. So we could not get him on the phone. So yes, that's, that's where we were with that. Mm. Let's take a bit of a step back and talk about Vicky Laveau Harvey, the writer. You were born in Canada, lived for many years in France, settled in Australia. Those are three very different literary cultures and three very different lenses through which to look at the world. Tell me what in the end made you choose Australia? Well, as much as I loved France, where I lived for 26 years, and I had become, I believe, quite indistinguishable from the native fauna there, um, because I did speak French before I went there, I did most of my tertiary studies there, and then I decided not to go home to Canada, um, but to live in France. And I lived there for 26 years, I believe, 25 or 26, yeah. And during that time, I had various jobs. I had an extended family through marriage. I had two children. And my children were growing up. And I, at some point, decided that these were children with two cultures. My husband was French. And I thought, wouldn't it be good for them to experience life in a new country, because I knew from growing up in Canada how very different that was, what different problems it presented, and also what opportunities. And I thought it would be good for my children to experience that, because they had one parent from the new world, as it was called, <laughs> and one parent from the old world. So we talked about it, and I was thinking perhaps Canada. And uh, my husband came home one day and said, what about Australia or New Zealand? And I thought, well, why not? That sounds exciting. So that's what we did. And we came here in 1988. Your career has always had you deep in words and language before the erratics. You were a translator and an editor. Was that always something that you were drawn to? I think words have always been my my solace and my escape. I was thinking about this when I was thinking about what I might say to you today and thinking about what I read when I was younger. And I know I read all the time as a child. And I've always been a reader. I've always had professions where I wrote when I was an editor, I was a business editor. I wasn't editing literature, for example. Similarly for translation, I've never been a literary translator, although that is my great love, and I have taught that at university for a number of years, and that was my great joy, teaching that. But I have been fascinated by words forever, I think, and I am one of those people who yells at the television set when people 
announce that there are less COVID tests being done this week, and I yell fewer. It's fewer COVID tests. <laughs> you can count them. It's not less. It's fewer. I'm one of those people. <laughs> Are you one of those people that will stop if you say between these three things? Oh, that one would really get me. You don't hear that much down here. I think we don't have that many things around. I don't really know why. Let's go back to pick up a thread you talked about earlier. What were the books that you were reading when you were young? Well, this this is something that I've been asked quite often. What did I read as a child? And I've always been amazed by people who say, you know, I can remember reading Charlotte's Web or I read Enid Blyton. To tell you the truth, I do not remember what I read as a child. I know I was always in the library. I knew I was always reading. The only book that floats to the top of my memory is A Child's Garden of Verses, the Robert Louis Stevenson. That's the only title that comes mm-hmm. up. Now, I presume that since I had no parental supervision and they belonged to the Book of the Month Club, I was reading probably very early a lot of things I shouldn't have been. And I remember distinctly that the books would arrive from the book club and uh, they'd get opened. My mother was a voracious reader. And they usually sat on the coffee table while my parents were reading them that fortnight or month, whenever they came. But occasionally those books would disappear immediately. And I knew those were the ones that I wanted to read because those were the ones that were not age appropriate, even in my parents' very, you know, lax kind of (laughs) parenting (laughs) parameters. So I would go looking for those books, which I inevitably found. So I do not remember as a child what I read. I remember haunting the libraries. I remember talking to librarians. I do not have titles of books or Mm -hmm. distinct memories of books that come to mind. I know I read series of books. There was one about little girls doing ballet dancing in some place in Britain. It was a series of books. I cannot remember the titles. It was like reading a fairy story for me because I lived on the prairies and the blizzard was howling outside as they were, you know, mincing around in their tutus. So, but I don't have precise titles. I remember more from the time I was a young adult, of course. And so let's go forward to that time. Were there, what was the first book that you remember grabbing you of, of thinking, you know, this is either written really well or this has really pulled me in? Well, I did read a lot of classic literature, so to speak, especially in French when I was doing my first university degree. So I was particularly attracted to the 18th century, and I ended up going on to write theses on Voltaire, um, which I think is quite interesting. I had a friend who was working on Proust, and when she wrote, her sentences were about half a mile long, and mine tended to have six words and end with a full stop. And she typed up my master's thesis for me, and she said, I have to keep retyping. This was before computers and autocorrect. <laughs> and she said, I have to keep ripping the page out of the typewriter and starting again because I put a comma. You can't possibly have a full stop that soon. And I thought, isn't this interesting? Because I think I liked Voltaire because that's the way I wrote. 
anyhow, that was my bent was something quite spare and straightforward. And she was a different kind of person. She analyzed in a much more multi-form way. But I thought that was interesting. And some of the things I read at university, I very much liked. Afterwards, as a young adult, I can remember reading some feminist literature. I remember, well, it was mainstream literature, but we were in that wave of feminism at that time. For example, um, The Women's Room by Marilyn French, which I thought spoke to a lot of things that were very important and that weren't exactly new at that point, but which were expressed in a way that was obviously reaching a lot of people. And then I read, you know, Margaret Atwood and Alice Munro. I very much liked Alice Hoffman in my young adulthood. I still like her um, because of that combination of, Mm -hmm. of something ethereal and that lovely writing, which is very much in the present. People of that nature, yes. Some people always know that they are writers or are going to be writers. For some, it dawns on them later. Which side did you come down on? I never had the idea that I would be a writer. I worked with writing, you know. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of university studies. I was writing all the time. I knew how to research. I knew how to present. I put those things to use in my professional life as a, an editor, and I loved the difficulties of translation because translating is such an amazingly difficult thing. I'm just reading a very funny book, which is called, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Now I had it around here somewhere. And it's a book about the difficulties of translation. And I like this because especially translating poetry is an almost impossible task. I wrote an essay a little while ago for um, Read It Forward online Mm -hmm. about the difficulties of translating and about translating a six-word poem and how very difficult that is. So these are things that I've always loved, but I've never seen myself as a writer, and I never set out to publish a book. I love the writing process. I write a lot of poetry, and I... I wouldn't say I'm writing for myself. I have a writing group and I do share with them, but I've never been any good at sending anything anywhere. And it's usually been episodic at best that I've sent anything anywhere. And that was the case with this book. So I didn't have a plan to be a published writer and publishing and writing are two completely different things, of course. And some of this last few years, what's happened has um, come as a great surprise to me. And so tell me about the path to writing this book. How did it begin for you? I think I was struck. I mean, I have belonged to writer's centers for many, many years. I started what people, I think, rather strangely call creative writing in my 40s. I wrote short fiction mostly at that point. I've always been interested. And when I moved to Australia, I uh, did a course at the Writers' Centre here in Sydney on memoir. And I was very interested by the form. I think I've always 
known that I had a wealth of material. And I found that I was swamped by the material. I had too much stuff. Every time I tried to write about my family, which was obviously a preoccupation with me, my family of origin, I was swamped by the material. I didn't know how to go at it. When my mother broke her hip in 2007, it was amazing because I was living through something with my sister that was in a way a manageable narrative. The things that were happening were things that might happen to anyone trying to deal with mental health issues in a family, with, with the problem of aging parents, with things of this nature. And at the same time, they brought forward a wealth of memories and past things. And I thought to myself that this might be useful for someone to know, someone else to know, that there are hilarious moments in the worst situations that black humor is not only a possibility, it's a necessity and an absolute reality. And that you will have moments when you are able to catch your breath, no matter how black it is. I thought that might be useful. And also there were things that were just so funny that I thought I really have to write this down. I mean, driving down a country road in Alberta and seeing a sign pointing at a very large boulder, which is called the Okotoks Erratic. And the sign says Okotoks is the small town very near which my parents had a property. Seeing this sign that said, visit the Okotoks Erratic, and thinking to myself, well, what exactly do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> These were funny moments. They were funny to me. I had no idea if they would be funny to other people. And I'm also immensely gratified when a reader will say to me, I didn't think I'd laugh, but I laughed many times in this book. That makes me very happy. And there is a, a generosity of spirit to this book. You've gone out of your way to say that this this isn't about catharsis for you. You're not trying to settle scores or exercise demons. And that does come through in the writing, which, considering some of the experiences, is is quite impressive. Well, I think you have to find catharsis somewhere, Michael. I just don't think it's a good idea to try to do it in your writing. I would recommend climbing a large mountain or getting a whole lot of therapy or, you know, militating for a cause which is dear to your heart, perhaps because of your own personal story, something that takes you outside of yourself and allows you to get the monkeys off your back. I think you need to do that first before you write your book. That is my very strong conviction. And I would just like to say that I've looked into this and about half the people who write memoir feel very strongly the way I do. And the other half feel quite the opposite. So it's, you can look at it both ways. I'm a kind of writerly writer. I write poetry. I want every word to count. I don't feel I can exercise a control over the kind of, let's call it craft, I am using to put my words on the paper if I am blown away by the emotion that comes up. I need to deal with the emotion and then I can write. As you were writing this, were there books that you were reading or authors that you looked to 
as you were trying to figure out the best way how to tell the story? No, I just told it. It just, the events were there. I'm a straightforward person. I wanted to say, this happened, and these following things developed from it. It gets complex, but some of it was simple. We dealt with this, we dealt with that. I remembered this, I remembered that. I think I wanted to write this memoir the way I write poetry. I wanted it to be spare. I didn't find it difficult. I didn't have to edit out masses of material. I was lucky enough to know the type of thing that I wanted on the page and how spare I wanted it to be. I wanted the reader to be able to see the trajectory, but not be overwhelmed. And I know some readers have said, I wanted more details about the abuse. Well, that's not what I'm doing. This isn't a misery memoir. My life was not ruined. I've had a wonderful life. This is about something else. That spareness seems to come out of or be imbued by the setting that the book is is written in, in the foothills of, of southern Alberta. I'll make a slight diversion just to say that one of my earliest memories as a child is waking up while on a cross-country drive with my family at the age of four. We'd driven across the Canadian prairies at night, mm-hmm. and I woke up just as we were coming to the foothills of Alberta. And it was the first time I had that sense of landscape as being something that could be awe-inspiring, and I've never forgotten it. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And those, those foothills hang in the background of many of the scenes in this book. Is landscape like a character in the erratics? Absolutely. I wanted it to be that. I very much did, perhaps unconsciously when I was writing, but when I read what I'd written, I thought, It is a character, it's there, and it's so important because as much as I am now anchored where I live here in Sydney, Australia, and as much as I love Australia, I also have my heart in that landscape. That's where, at a similar age to you, Michael, I saw those things. I was that age when I lived in those foothills, in those little towns around southern Alberta, south of Calgary, and that is the landscape I saw. And I find that landscape, when I get off the plane in Calgary, I feel like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle fitting in where she belongs. So my heart remains there to a certain extent because I think you imprint something that strikes you as beautiful and wonderful and something I obviously felt very consoling when I was a child. I think you imprint that and it always remains with you. Well, and it's funny what people find consoling because it is a landscape of extremes. It is, as you say, cold enough to kill you. It is baking hot. It is flat and rugged and windswept. And yet, if that's what you've grown up, then that is, you know, that's where you're rooted. That is your sense of home. Yes. And I remember always as a teenager grabbing the paper in the morning, be delivered on the front step 
by the guy going by on his bike. And I would try to get there first before my mother did because she always needed to see what catastrophes we could talk about over breakfast. And I tried to get there first so I could look at the cartoon. There was a wonderful cartoonist whose name I'm not sure I've ever known, but he drew commentary cartoons, sometimes perhaps political, but I didn't care about the message. He always had a very tiny person on the side of his cartoon looking at this outline of the Rockies in the distance and saying, aren't the mountains beautiful today? And that for me, I had to see that every morning. That kind of anchored me, you know? I understand that you are back to writing poetry now, that that's what you've returned to after the whirlwind of both writing this book and promoting it and doing interviews like this. Well, I am um, writing poetry right now. I find that's a very good thing to be doing now. I also have a project which is to find out a lot more about my maternal grandfather, who was a very interesting person. And I suspect there may be more memoir will come of that or perhaps something very different. That's a project. I was actually supposed to be in North America about now doing some research, but those things are off the agenda for a little while. There's a lot you can do on the web. So I am endeavoring to keep breathing life into that. But for the moment, poetry is, is a focus for me. And I have done a number of, um, I've done some personal essays and some things of that nature about topics that have to do with the themes of the erratics. In particular for the Griffith Review, which was, is a university review here, a literary magazine comes out three times a year. And there was one called Getting On, about getting older and aging populations, and I wrote a piece for that. So I have been doing things like that, but I find poetry in the way you are obliged to find a point of reference and a kind of essence, the image which is the essence of what you wish to say. That kind of concentration right now is very good for me. I'd recommend it to almost everyone. I think we're all feeling a little bit fractured. Truly. Having finished the erratics, do you feel like the need to to write memoir to to describe segments of your life has been satisfied, or is there something that you might come back to at some point in the future? Well, there's a lot I didn't say in the erratic. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that that was off topic, not because I was hiding it because it was too painful or too shocking or whatever. That's not the case. But there were a lot of side roads into the foothills that I didn't pursue. Um, and those are possible. Also, I've had a rather interesting later life. And I think there are things that I might want to try writing about in memoir form. But the first thing would be to do the research for this in amazing character that was my grandfather and see what might come of that because that's been um, something that's kind of shaken up everything. My grandfather was someone who presented a certain way. He was someone I loved very much. He died when I was eight and I know that his affection for me was real. I can still feel it and I loved him dearly. However, the story that he told about who he was and where he came from 
turns out to have been completely false. And until very recently, when I found this out, which was about two years ago, that was one thing I would have said, well, there was truth in the family that I knew when I was small, and my grandfather was part of it. Well, his affection for me was true. What he had told people, not necessarily me, I was a small child, but what he had told people about who he was, was a complete fabrication. So that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, who are we? Are we what we choose to present to the world, which was my experience of what my mother did and what she tried to do with me? You know, I mean, I was everything from a professor at the Sorbonne when she spoke to people about me to some kind of drug grandmother from Colombia. You know, I was all of those things. I was presented as those and I had to counter those perceptions of people who wouldn't open their door to me in particular, <laughs> having heard this Columbia story. So who are we? What defines who we are? Does it matter that I didn't know exactly where my grandfather came from? What were the reasons for what he decided to do? So I love those questions, and I think that could be possibly memoir, but I don't know yet. It's wonderful to think about the possibilities and to try to start working towards them. At the time that we're recording this, we are on the eve of the election in the United States. This is a time when truth seems to have been made more elastic than ever. The idea of objective, testable reality is under assault, and where the you know, gaslighting has gone from being an esoteric term to a daily phenomenon. Are there parts of the public discourse right now, the political landscape right now, that feel familiar to you, having lived through what you did? I find that the bullying tactics that I'm seeing, especially in the U.S., on the part of one person in particular, uh the manipulation of truth. I mean, I don't know that truth has been, I think the public confidence in the possibility of there being truth has been shaken. I think the truth is there. It's just that it has no traction. You can fact check all you want, and a lot of people simply do not care, or they do not believe what you tell them. I think we've undermined press freedoms to a point where that is no longer something people look to. And this all makes me very afraid. The bullying tactics are something that are rather a, I wouldn't call it a trigger, but there's something that feels very familiar to me and that I think you need to have the courage to stand up to in your private life. The gaslighting is a fascinating phenomenon because how do you counter that? How do you counter the passive-aggressive attacks that you may come under? It's complicated to do, but I think we have to just, especially as writers, try to keep speaking our truth, try to think about what we propagate, what things we might. I don't tweet. I think that's a horrible thing to be doing, but if I did, I'd be very careful about what I retweeted, if that's the verb, um, because I think we need to have ourselves grounded in truth, and that's actually all you can do, and I think it's what you do as a writer, even if you're writing fiction, you are grounding yourself in some bedrock of truth 
that you are willing, sometimes at your peril, to put at the disposal of people who might read you. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my great pleasure, Michael. Thank you. I've been speaking with Vicki Laveau-Harvey about her latest book, The Erratics. It and the other books we've mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com slash conversation. There are so many great conversations with so many good authors there. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tandler. Thank you for listening. So, and I did want to say to you, which I didn't, it didn't happen. We can do it I, now. We can, well, <laughs> we I'm still can recording. everything is still recording. This is, it's never oh, too late. Um, that I had listened to the lovely conversation with Anne Cleves. And I thought, isn't she wonderful? I mean, she really, <laughs> is. She really is. Oh, I just love her. And um, it's funny because she said she read Simonon. And when I was writing my thesis in French, in France, I was living in a garret and I was- Of course stuck. you were. Of course I was, <laughs> I mean, as you do. And um, I was struggling because it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a thesis. And uh, every weekend on Saturday, I would stop the hammer and anvil business with this thesis. And I would sit down and I would read a book by Simonon on Saturday because they're very short. And they're such good examples of how to do something. And that's what I would do. That was my, it was kind of what kept kept me sane over a number of months. Luckily he wrote a lot of books. (laughs) Mm -hmm.